You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you all here. For those of you who don't know, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to be continuing through our sermon series through 1 Corinthians today. In fact, there's only three more messages left in the series after this as we lead into Holy Week and the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection on Easter weekend. So that's coming up fast. And uh, it seems fitting then that over the course of this month, including last week already, we've been learning all about the importance of Jesus' resurrection and, and what it means for us from chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So let's, let's turn there now. We'll be starting at verse 12 and reading all the way to verse 34. So 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 34. If you want to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, it'll be up there. If not, All right, this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, and he says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ also have perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If, if the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? Or what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Earlier in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, 
Paul says, I'm not saying this to shame you, but here, he says, I say this to your shame. You should take note. Anyways, you know, um, I often feel bad for those, those athletes who train their whole lives. Like they're just 100% committed, their, their diet, exercise, everything, right? Just everything is committed to, to training for something like the Olympics. But then something happens to them last minute, which renders them unable to compete, like, like an injury or disqualification or illness or something, right? Can you, can you imagine that? Spending your whole life training and, and preparing for this one thing, this, this one moment, only to find out it was all for naught. That would suck, right? Um, on that end, I, I also heard a story once about uh, uh, a woman who spent her whole life committed to nothing but her career, just her career, also that she could make enough money to have an early and enjoyable retirement. But then on the very same year that she announced she was going to retire and do all the things she'd been waiting to do, she got diagnosed with cancer and passed away. It's a true story that, that I heard, and it's definitely a sad story. She worked all her life for this thing she never got to enjoy. And her, it, it reminds me of Ecclesiastes 1, 2 to 3 that says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That uh, toiling under the sun part of that verse also reminds me of the time I agreed to take my oldest son to McDonald's for a milkshake. He was begging me for a milkshake. He was around four years old at the time. And um, I was like, okay, it was a hot summer day, probably in the high 20s or early 30s, and so a milkshake sounded pretty good. And I decided it would be best to, to walk to McDonald's because it's, it's healthier and, and McDonald's isn't, right? So, you know, counteract. So that's what we did. We walked, which I kind of regretted because all the while the sun was just beating down on us, just, you know, drying, drying me out. My hands were just like so dry and like sweat was dripping from our brows and every step was causing us to look even more forward to that nice, refreshing, cool drink to hit our lips. And of course, when we got there, the restaurant had to be busy, right? As the McDonald's by our house often was. And, and so we had to stand in line for what felt like forever. But then when we finally got to the till, I ordered us our two milkshakes. And you know, I should have seen this next part coming. The cashier responded to me saying nonchalantly and without apology, our ice cream machine is down. It's become such an epidemic that it's just a meme now, right? So I'm not the only one that's experiencing that. But in that moment, you know, I'm like, are you kidding me? Right? I th well, what a waste of time and energy that was. All that effort and all that walking in the hot sun for nothing. Of course, to make matters work, I then had to walk back home in the same hot sun, but now with a crying child. Thanks, McDonald's. Thanks for wasting my time. And, and in a similar manner, but obviously on a much bigger scale, th this is Paul's argument in our passage from this morning. It, it seems like there were some people in the church in, of Corinth that, that were denying the possibility of, of resurrection. But if that's so, Paul writes, then, then the whole Christian life would be a waste of time. 
be a waste. If, if resurrection isn't possible or, or real, then that would mean Jesus himself must not have been resurrected. And then that would mean he wasn't God incarnate. And then that would mean that all of Christianity as a whole would be meaningless. Our faith would be meaningless. Everything we've done and hoped for as followers of Jesus would all be in vain. Without the, without the resurrection, Christianity is a sham. Now, we have to understand... We have to understand that most people in the Greco-Roman culture would have come from like different cults or religions which did believe in, in the afterlife in, in some form or another. But this was mainly concerning the soul once it left uh, their morally corrupted body, as they would say. So most of them probably didn't have uh, a problem with, with the idea of, of a spiritual afterlife or something like that. In fact, this is quite often what, what many Christians in our Western culture I would say wrongly think as well. They have the same idea. They, they assume that when the Bible talks about resurrection life, it's talking about our souls living for eternity in heaven, you know, floating on a cloud and playing harps or whatever, right? And, and while that's most likely what happens initially, when we die, you know, the part where our souls go to heaven, not the cloud and harp part. But anyways, heaven is not the end game. In fact, what the New Testament promises us over and over again is that when Jesus returns triumphantly to present the church to God the Father and crush evil for good and restore all things, it's saying all who believe in his name by faith will be physically or bodily raised up with him to dwell with God in the new heaven and new earth. We'll have physical, new glorified bodies just as Jesus was physically raised from the death. The disciples could touch his scars, right? And we'll, we'll be talking more about that idea next week. That's what the passage next week is talking about. But anyways, one could easily see, though, how, 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 how there could be some people, you know, in the Church of Corinth and, and elsewhere, who have a hard time believing that this could be possible. I mean, it, it, is, it is kind of weird to think about right? Like, let's be honest. It, it's like kind of almost like zombie stuff, right? And, and then there's all the technical questions. It's like, okay, if we're physically resurrected, what about those individuals whose bodies and bones have already disintegrated back into the earth already? Or, or what about those who've been burned up? For example, like those Christians who were used as human torches in Rome, like how, how would they be resurrected if they don't have their physical bodies anymore? So, so I get it, right? There's a whole potential can of worms here which really isn't a can of worms. But again, we'll get to that next week. But back to the point he's making, though, like, okay, I can understand why some people don't have a hard time believing in this, but at the same time, if bodily resurrection isn't real or possible, then Jesus, again, wasn't resurrected. It couldn't have happened either, which means we as Christians are living our lives in vain. In other words, one cannot simply claim to follow Jesus while denying the resurrection. You just can't do that. And, but many people do try to do that. Right? They try to reduce Jesus down to someone who's simply a, a prophet or, or a good moral teacher who, who taught some good lessons and, and showed us how to live compassionately and, and, and lovingly or whatever, right? And then, and then he die, had, had to die for it for some reason. And, and so... Some try to say, well, you know, if I die and I find out that Christianity was false 
at least, at least I can say I lived a good life. Which Paul says is ridiculous. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Following Jesus only helps us in this life, like again, how to live morally or, or happily or whatever. He's like, no, we're to be pitied. Why? First of all, because we're still dead in our sins. So that's worthless. And furthermore, we're also misrepresenting God. We're being false witnesses about God. That's doubly bad, right? If, if, if we die and find out that we were misrepresenting God, guaranteed no one is going to be standing at the judgment saying, well, you know, at least I lived a good life. <laughs> That's not going to happen. And besides, Paul writes, living as a, as a Christian isn't all candy and rainbows anyway. He writes that as a, fo- as a follower of Jesus himself, he suffers and sacrifices daily. He faces death daily. And, and that it would all be pretty pointless and a waste of his efforts if Jesus wasn't even alive. Like, I, like I agree with him there. Like there's, there's hardly anything worse than just suffering for no reason. In fact, this, this in and of itself, I, I would say, gives us some evidence for the fact that the that the disciples must have actually seen the resurrected Christ in the flesh. Because it was only after they did that, when when they were suddenly willing to then suffer and and sacrifice and even die for him. What I'm saying is, why would they all be so ready to endure persecution and, and give up their lives for Jesus if he was still lying dead in a tomb? The most likely answer there is that they wouldn't. They really had nothing to gain in giving up their lives unless they were certain Jesus was alive and they would receive resurrection lives themselves as well. And therefore, it's hard to imagine Christianity even existing if Jesus was still dead. And I'd say that that's Paul's point here, saying that if Jesus hadn't rose from the grave, then all his suffering, all his sacrificing he's doing for the gospel would be pretty stupid. Bottom line here is that we can't take the resurrection away from the message of Jesus, away from the gospel, because everything Jesus is and taught and claimed to be, and therefore everything we do and believe as Christians, rises or falls on the reality and hope that it happened. As uh, theologian J.C. Ryle writes, he says, the resurrection of Christ is, is one of the foundation stones of Christianity. It was the seal of the great work that he came on earth to do. It was the crowning proof that the ransom he paid for sinners was accepted. The atonement for sin accomplished. The head of him who had the power of death bruised and the victory won. Resurrection is proof that Jesus has won. And Jesus stated of himself in John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection And the life, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. So Jesus said this of himself. And so again, if if resurrection can't happen, then again, that would mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead on the third day, which would mean he's not the resurrection and the life, which he claimed to be, 
which would mean he's not perfectly holy or the son of God or the Messiah who is now seated at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and earth. At best, he'd just be a martyr for a religion he himself made up or, or at worst, a crazy liar, which would also mean he didn't defeat our sin and death of the cross, which would mean, which would then mean our faith is pointless and we have no hope of salvation, which ultimately means we're hooped along with everyone else who's died before us. It all rises or falls on the reality of the resurrection. This is literally life and death. So without the resurrection, Christianity is fake and we should be pitied. But on the flip side of that, he's also saying that since it's true, it changes everything. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28 again. He says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. <clears throat> Afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God. The Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. That's, he says that just to make sure that they're not thinking that God the Father is placed underneath Jesus. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. So I want to point out that this passage isn't dealing with the proof or evidence of his resurrection or of the many witnesses who saw Jesus raised in the flesh because he's already mentioned this in the previous passage. We've already discussed that. Rather, the emphasis here now is on the glorious truth that Jesus was raised from the dead and what that means for us. Namely, that his resurrection proves and confirms that yes, Jesus is the Messiah, fully human and yet fully God, who did defeat the power of sin and death for us at the cross as our perfect sacrifice. Secondly, it confirms to us that all who believe in his name are forgiven of sin and given a sure hope of resurrection life. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, he says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so Jesus came to dwell with man as man, still fully God, but also fully man, in order to undo or rather to restore what was broken in the garden the Garden of Eden. Or as someone once said, Jesus redeemed every area in which Adam failed. Adam's sin ushered in brokenness and death into the world, but Jesus, who overcame temptation, his perfect and sinless sacrifice paid the wages of that sin at the cross so that death could no longer have dominion over us. And so because Jesus died and rose from the grave, we can be confident that in him, through him, so will we. Romans 6, 5 it says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, that's us giving up our old nature, 
which is symbolized in baptism, as he's talking about here. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And moreover, Paul writes that Jesus has become the first fruits. So that, that is, he's the first of a great harvest of those who will be raised up from the dead and presented before God the Father on that day when Jesus returns with all authority to restore all things and crush evil and death once and for all. First Thessalonians 4 and 5. A couple of verses there say it like this. Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about people who have died so that you won't mourn like others who don't have any hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose, so we also believe that God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with him. But what does this good news of resurrection life mean for us today then? Well, again, it means everything. It means everything. On the one hand, Paul writes that if there is no resurrection life, then we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Or YOLO, as the kids used to say five years ago, right? No one says that anymore. I hate to break it to you. Which is fine, because it's silly. You only live once, right? So make sure you live your best life now, hoard your money, live immorally, sleep around, be gluttonous, get drunk, steal things for fun, collect stamps, do, do whatever makes you happy because it doesn't matter, right? It's all meaningless anyway. Might, might as well have fun and, and avoid suffering as much as you can, right? Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But on the other hand, if we've been saved into resurrection life and are awaiting the fulfillment of a better and more glorious kingdom, then it should actually make us view our current reality in a completely different light. In his light, in fact. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15 says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. With the knowledge and hope that by Jesus' grace, we've been redeemed by his death and resurrection, and therefore now await a future glory in eternity, this should make us hold on to our, our earthly endeavors and whatever earthly wealth we have pretty loosely not only because we can't take any of it with us when we die, but also because this temporary life all amounts to to very little, to to nothing even compared to the kingdom that awaits us. Instead, we should seek, as Jesus said, to build up our treasure in heaven and not on earth where moth and rust destroy. So what this means is that we should be willing, like the disciples were, to love sacrificially, to give generously, to live selflessly, and to even joyfully endure suffering and persecution if need be, all for the sake of Jesus. 
Because first of all, as we've learned, his resurrection assures us that we have nothing to fear, not even death. And secondly, it reminds us that our current suffering pales in comparison to the glory that awaits us. And thirdly, if we're armed with the knowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, shouldn't we be willing to to give and do whatever it takes to reflect that and proclaim this hope to others before Jesus comes again, no matter what the cost? Again, Paul said that he, he suffered and faced death daily for Christ. He carries the death of Christ with him so that Christ's life may be made known. Does does our Christian walk look like that? Do we look like that? Philippians 3, 8 to 11 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish anyway, right? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. See, those two go hand in hand. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There are only two paths. Again, one that says, eat, drink, and be merry, seek pleasure and avoid suffering at all costs, or the other which says, I count all as lost for the sake of Christ in order to know him and make him known. When we take an honest look at our lives, which path do we truly reflect? I say this because while our theology as Christians might not be like those in in Corinth who outright denied the resurrection and therefore the gospel of Jesus by doing so, I would argue, though, that many of us, many Christians today, do deny the reality and power of the resurrection simply by the way we live our lives. Verse 34 addresses this when it says, come to your senses. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Come to your senses. Wake up. Stop living in sin. Stop living for yourselves and and being influenced by the ways of the world. Pick up your cross. Instead, pick up your cross and start living in the hope and the reality of the resurrection life you've been given through Christ Jesus. It's not resurrection life later, it's resurrection life now. especially because some people are still ignorant about God. And this in and of itself should bring us to shame. 
think of this, that, that there are human beings outside these walls whom God deeply cares for and loves who don't even know that. Who haven't even heard about or experienced the saving power of the living and risen Christ because we're too busy denying that same glorious power and reality of Jesus' resurrection in our own lives by putting ourselves before others and by placing the majority of our efforts into building our own earthly kingdoms. And when we do that, that is what it truly means to live our lives in vain. That is vanity. Matthew 16, 24 to 26, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In Christ, we've been set free to to give up our old sinful lives, to deny ourselves, to deny our old selves, and follow after Jesus. But yet, again, too often Christians tend like to live like they haven't denied themselves. They, they reflect the world more than the kingdom they're being resurrected into. And of course, that's a huge detriment to, to both our witness and to our namesake as children of God. Because again, in the same way those in Corinth were denying the resurrection and therefore the power and the certainty of the gospel itself, when we choose to live like the world, we're also proclaiming to that same world that the death and resurrection of Christ is meaningless and powerless, that it might as well not be real. And for that, Paul writes, we should be ashamed. For that, we should be falling at the feet of our Lord who gave up his very life for us and repenting for our folly. Because again, if we've been saved into resurrection life, it should change everything in our lives. If the resurrection didn't happen, it's all meaningless. But if the resurrection did happen, then it changes everything. There's two extremes here, right? Which one are we at? And not that, we have, not that we're going to live perfectly, right? But we should be changed and progressively changing. I want to finish my message this morning by reading through a passage in Colossians, Colossians 3, which talks about what resurrection life should look like for us. He says this, So if... You have been raised with Christ. Right? If, if you live in the, the reality and hope of that resurrection life, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, Rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because we've been raised with Christ into resurrection life, it changes everything. Nothing we do or give up for him is in vain. And everything we now do or say should be with that desire to proclaim him and give thanks to God the Father through him.